Grab genommen bedauert.
Luc Galen, le... Oh, how you say in English? Ah, the Cat's Whisker. <laughs> so, so, maintenant, mes chéris, écoutez. Oh, you. That is very interesting to me, stunning rather ear now. Huh? By Jove, you are bright, aren't you? <laughs> I love you. I must have you now, today. Parbleu, always. Oh, I'll do. A clever Frenchman who knew his way about with women. An Englishwoman vacationing in France. Why was she there? Oh, Jules, if I were a better manager, it would be better to be in. I'd never have had the breakdown. I'd never have come to France, and I'd never have met you, and even your... <laughs> your wildest class. Oh, so that was it. But all such items come to an end someday. And summer comes to an end. At least that's the correct calculation. That's the way Betty calculated. Without thinking of her, Jules. Jules? Oui, ma chérie? I... I have to go home. Oui. Et je viens. I come also. Oh, Jules. That's impossible. However, the usual sighs and protestations, of course, it was just a brief interlude that it was a trifle saddened to let it go. After all, when a woman is crowding for it, she went home anyway to Sussex to the Binnacle Inn to security of sorts, and to her husband, Al. Couldn't it hasn't been too bad while you were away, Bessie? All the rooms were let this week, and the bar trade was fine. I guess say you did all right by the bar. The landlord's got to be social girl, otherwise his customers go somewhere else. There's a difference, Alf, between social and drunk. Yeah, no, none of that. I take a drop now and then, but I don't get drunk. Yeah. Well, another customer. Hmm. Business is picking up, and on the hotel side of that. Oh. Yeah. How can I help you, sir? Uh, I have, uh, how do you say, uh, one moment, please. Uh, uh, let me find the word. Ah, oui. I have come to stay. What do you know? A uh, uh, Froggy. Uh, please to have you, Monsieur. And uh, may I ask how you found this? Uh, so I, uh, uh, well, that is, uh, Monsieur Brown, I, the marvelous Madame Brown, is the recommendation for your so select hotel. Is it not so that we have met in Provence, Madame? The little Frenchman must have been mad. Mad with love. Just a little touched in the head. In any case, he'd come just as he said, stay. As he explained it to Al Brown. I am, how you say, an inventor. I have much great ideas. Yes, yes, sure, Gamma, sure. But uh, do you make any money? To make money? Uh, je ne comprends pas. Money, uh, shillings, uh, francs. Ah, oui, beaucoup d'argent. Oh, right now I wake from Canada. Much money. And uh, what do you invent to get all this Boku money? The wireless. I am in the wireless. Very much interested. Well, Monsieur, if you can get music out of the air, maybe you can get some money out of the same place to pay what you owe us. Huh? You've been here a month now, and we haven't seen a shilling on your board bill. Board bill? Come on. 
There was another conversation shortly thereafter on the same subject, if not exactly on the same light level. Look, Bessie, he's your friend. We've got to have some money. How can I ask him for money, even if he is our friend? Yours, not mine. He doesn't take walks with me every afternoon. Ask Brown, are you suggesting? I'm not suggesting, dearie. I'm telling you, get some money out of him or out he goes. You're supposed to be the business head in this family. All right. Tend to business here. Well, you never talked to me like this before. It was the first time for everything, they say. For the first time, Al was in the driver's seat, and he knew it. So did Betty know it. On one of their afternoon walks, she said as much to you. You? We must have you. I suspect. <laughs> he will do nothing, jamais. He's after me. Huh? get money from you. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I'm telling you that Alf will be real nasty. And he throws both out. And you without a pen. Well, it's not funny. He holds the whip hand. Don't you understand? Uh, we, one moment. Oh, oh, you. Not that little book again. Yes, a more, le petit livre. Uh, ah, you see, I have it. Like an Englishman so... Ah, one may steal his wife, but not owe to him money. <laughs> Jules was so confident, to say the least. He behaved as if he had a plan. He said to Al... Never fear, mon ami. In a few days, beaucoup d'argent. You like? Oui? To Betty, he said. Je t'aime, ma chérie. Do not fear. All will be well. A quiet dull New Year's morning. The routine of the inn continued, minus the overtired, oversleeping maid. After a while, the master came grumbling down the stairs. Betty! Betty, where are you? Well, let him go to this room, then. Uh, pardon, monsieur, into my chamber. You wish for me to go? Oui? Oh, no, no, no need for that. Is there Oh, so long as he's awake, I don't care one way or another. Where's my salt? You, you know I can't start a day without Miss Salt. <laughs> uh, I know, dear. Uh, they're where you'd expect them to be, on the mantelshelf, in their regular place. Oh, yes, I forgot. If I may disturb you, Monsieur. Oh, but of course. The chair before the fire. Very nice, oui? charmant. <laughs> when it is uh, so very cold outside. Oh, thanks. Bessie, Bessie, that glass is here. Where's that tablespoon and some water? Oh, I'll get them for you. Just a moment, dear. Jules Gamache stood in the bay window and watched the little domestic scene. Occasionally, he riffled through his ever-present dictionary as if for a word to describe the events he was watching. Such inconsequential little event. Betty came trotting back from the kitchen with a tablespoon and a pitcher of water. She put them on the table alongside her salt and glass. Hal measured his own dosage, poured it into the glass. Then he poured in the water. Almost mockingly, he raised his glass as if in a toast to the Frenchman standing nearby. Then down the contents of the glass. 
Those salts taste bitter this morning? Yeah, they are never sweet. No? Uh, nothing sweet about them. Then why complain, dear? You had more to drink than usual last night, so the salts taste more bitter than usual. One hour later. Betty, 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 get, get some help. Oh, it's the cramps. Oh, oh, oh I can't. And it's, uh, come, and it's, uh, I can't stand it. I saw. Oh, Jules, get a doctor. Call the cook. Do something. I, I will try. My English, it is not good. Oh. No, but oh. I will try. Oh, my, my feet. My feet, they itch. Oh, they're driving me crazy. The pain, the pain, and the itching. Oh. Shortly thereafter... Alfie Brown was quite dead. And so the tragedy reached its climax. And playing its little part in that tragedy was a certain dictionary, which, as I told you, can be seen today in the Black Museum. too late. Alf Brown was past help. The doctor listened gravely to the story as Betty told it to him. While Jules stood by, the very picture of solicitude. <laughs> oh, he went so quick, doctor. And it's such agony. Cramps and groans. And he said the strangest thing. What was that, Mrs. Brown? <laughs> well, he cried out with his feet urging. It was almost the last thing he said. Is that right, Mr. Murphy? Oui, Monsieur le Docteur, ça avait raison. Well, if you say so, it's an interesting symptom. Peculiar one, particular poison. Though how this household will come by, I haven't the slightest idea. Poison? But doctor, it was his sauce. Although he did complain that they tasted more better than usual. Anything else, Mrs. Brown? No, no, nothing else. Oh, I'm so upset. Confused. But what poison? How? Itching feet, bitter taste, great pain, or do they all point to strychnine? Uh, but of course, we won't be able to know for certain until there's been a postmortem. Oh, doctor, why? Well, I, I can't sign a certificate under these circumstances. I have to notify the coroner and the police. Oh. Now, uh, I, I think our next precaution is for you to give me the bottle, the spoon, and the glass into my charge. Uh, where are they? Oh, well, I, I don't quite... Do you, uh, Mr. Ganache, do you remember? Uh, je ne sais pas, madame. Je ne comprends pas. Oh, come, Mrs. Brown. Now, now pull yourself together. Uh, you want to catch the party who poisoned your husband, don't you? Perhaps there was a better question than Dr. West could realize. It was pure rhetoric at that moment, as far as he was concerned. Of course, the widow wanted to catch the murderer. Still took a bit of concentrated prodding of Betty's memory until she said... I know now, Doctor. I put them in the drawer of the kitchen table when I left Port Arthur for a moment to fetch some tea and soda. I thought it might help. They found the bottle and the glass and the spoon in the kitchen table drawer. The doctor looked at them closely. Someone's washed these thoroughly. There are still traces of water in the bottle and the glass. Mrs. Brown, I'm going to the police at once. And Dr. Westcott went to the local police. 
The local police went to Scotland Yard. Betty Brown went to Jules Gamache. You did it, Joe. I don't know how, but you did it. You did. You killed Alfred. And you stayed right there and watched him die. Betty, you are most... uh, How is it? uh, Ah, oui. You are most hysterical. You know I do not kill your Alfie. You must know this. I know. I feel it in my bones. You killed him. Go away, Joe. Go away. I never want to see you again as long as I live. Sadly, as if overwhelmed by the unpredictability of women, Jules Gamache packed his things and left the binnacle inn. But he didn't go far. Just to the next village and the next inn, where he waited and watched. Waited to hear from his beloved, now widowed, his Betty. Waited for developments in the case which the coroner's jury had labeled death at the hands of person or persons unknown. The developments were not long in coming. My name is West, Mrs. Brown, Inspector West, Scotland Yard. My credentials. Uh, y- yes, sir. I have a few questions, particularly concerning the disposal of the poison. I'll, uh, I'll try to answer them, Inspector. Do you know who washed out the bottle and glass? No, I'm afraid I don't. I left them in the kitchen. We were all so upset by poor Alfred's suffering. We were rather hysterical, I'm afraid. I understand. No idea on that. I see. Uh, tell me, Mrs. Brown, have you ever used any kind of weed killer in the garden of this inn? Uh, no, sir. Not that I know of. Poison for rodents, rats, mice, and so on? No, sir. We've never been troubled by such. Have you any idea who might have wanted to kill your husband, Mrs. Brown? No, I haven't. Thank you very much, Mrs. Brown. If I could... The inspector left the front of the house, so to speak, and visited below stairs. He had a nice talk with the cook over a cup of tea. Mrs. Davis, did you wash out the salts bottle? No, why should I? I've got enough work. And that was New Year's Day. The maid didn't come in. I had to clean up, too. Pity, not much of a New Year in this house. Did you notice the bottle at all? Oh, I remember saying to Mrs. Brown that there wasn't much more than a tablespoon left in it. And perhaps she'd better order another bottle in case Mr. Brown was getting mad if he had none. Now, this is important, Mrs. Davis. Can you place anyone, anyone at all, in this kitchen between the time Mrs. Brown brought the bottle in here and the time Dr. Westcott took it away? No one but the Frenchman, sir. Mr. Gamesh. I seem to remember, sir. I wouldn't want to get him in no trouble unless he deserved it. But he did come in here and jabber at me. And then he used his little book. Little book? He's got a dictionary. Looks up the French and finds the English. Right comical he is sometimes. I see. Then he looked in his dictionary. And he said, bottle. He said something else. I didn't pay much attention. I just pointed at the kitchen drawer. Did he take the bottle out of the drawer? I wouldn't know, sir. For all I know, he just wanted to be sure it was in a safe place. I heard him open and close the drawer, that was all. Then he went out. Did he have a chance to put it back? Lots of chances. I was that busy running in and out. That's too bad. Oh, excellent team. The inspector was never a man to accept loose ends. He ran all his leads to earth. 
This is the approach which brought him finally to where Jules Gamache was staying. Do you accuse me, Inspector? Merely asking routine questions, Mr. Gamache. Did you have any reason to dislike or resent Mr. Brown? None. No, but of course not. Have you ever had any strychnine in your possession? No, but pourquoi? Why should I? I can't say, sir. I can only try to fill in the blank spaces. Someone, you see, gave Mr. Brown the opportunity to poison himself. That kind of gift is murder, Mr. Kamesh. <laughs> Naturellement. I'm afraid I must ask you to remain in England, sir, until the case is closed. But for me, this will be a pleasure. I assure you, Inspector, I wish to see vengeance on this murderer. I loved Mr. Brown almost as a brother. A smooth, blank wall for Scotland Yard to face and search for some crack somewhere. The interest in the case emmered down. Nothing was happening. Then the newspapers picked up a lead, something so fantastic the men assigned to watch the binnacle end in its neighborhood hardly believed their own ears. It seems that Jules Gamache began to write letters. And to the police. There is one suspect who had not been questioned. A man long subject to Alfred Brown's whims and temper. The pot washer at the inn, known to me only as Georges. I point the finger of suspicion. Observe, gentlemen of Scotland Yard, the comings and goings of Monsieur Arthur Brookfield, solicitor to Madame Brown. This man is in and out of her residence at all hours. Certainly not all of this can be on business. Was jealousy entering the picture now? The letters aroused a good deal of attention once they leaked to the newspapers, as such things have a way of doing. Jules Gamache was quite pleased when the reporters swarmed about him and the photographers took his picture. Many times, many poses. This was fame at last for an impoverished inventor living on his wits. Come in, sir. You asked to see me on the Brown case. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is uh, Scott, sir. Uh, I'm the owner of a chemist shop in Woking. Not too far from the Binnacle Inn, is it? Uh, just far enough to miss some of the news, but uh, this morning I saw this newspaper. Ah, uh, yes, yes, our French friend... Do you know him? He was a customer of mine uh, there a few weeks back, uh, just before Christmas. Go on, Mr. Scott. He asked for strychnine. Oh, what excuse did he give? Oh, something about experiments in the wireless. He uh, kept consulting a small English-French dictionary to express himself. The wireless, yes, that's the new excuse. Although why they should think the wireless operations entail the use of poisons is beyond me. Did you sell him any? I did. I, I made him sign the poison book. The name he used was Hatch. Mr. Scott, do you think you can identify this man among a dozen others? Well, Mr. Scott? That's he, sir. The short fellow with the bright black eyes. Thank you, mister. Monsieur le chemiste. Bonjour, c'est un plaisir. Uh, how you say, uh, one moment, please. Uh, with Issy. It is a pleasure that we meet again. Jules Gamache, I have a warrant for your arrest on a charge of willful murder. 
I must warn you that anything you may say... Well, that's the story. And today, the dictionary which played its part in that story can be found in its place in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. Truly a strange, impassioned little man, Jules Gamache. He's half crazy, half sane. You wonder about him. And you know, to add to the dilemma of his personality, is one last point. While Jules was awaiting execution, he wrote another letter to Inspector West, stating that shortly after the death of Al Brown, he, Jules, saw a woman. Whether the woman was the cook or his beloved Betty, he didn't know. Secrete something behind some loose bricks in the garden wall at the Binnacle Inn. Of course, the police investigated. They found two small jugs, one with crystalline strychnine in it, and the other with a solution of the same poison. Now, the question is, did Jules Gamache put those jugs there himself, or did one of the women? And if the latter... Why did Gamache wait until just before his death to reveal this? Was it some odd form of gallantry? Well, I guess no one will ever know. And now until next time, till we meet in the same place and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain as always obediently yours. This is WDCBFM Glenelg. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicides, where everyday objects—a magazine, a cigarette lighter, a student's lamp, a paperweight—all are. Uh, Touched by murder. Here's a letter. It's a familiar object, handwritten on a good bond paper. No imprint on the top, merely a date. A simple, single initial for the signature. Do you notice the same thing about this letter that I do, sir? Rather a well-formed handwriting? More than that. This letter was written by an educated person. A very well-educated person. But for what a purpose? Today, that letter can be seen in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Killing of one human being by another. 
as here lies death. In serried endless ranks, pitiful instruments, not only guns and knives and poisons and the cords of the garroters, but the simple things, spoons and cups and even, yes, here for instance is a baby's pacifier, complete with the ivory ring. Dropped in a bedroom, it led to a woman who was a nurse. Dropped in a bedroom, it took that woman up the 13 steps to a hangman's noose. Here's the letter. The letter I told you about. The letter of today's story. This one begins innocently enough in a bank. As a man steps to a teller's window. You catch this for me, please? Do nothing, sir. I have an account here. You can check the signature. Uh, yes, sir. That'll take just a moment. So normal. So much in the ordinary course of daily business. The cashier goes to the files, compares the signature and the check with that on file, returns to his wicket. Everything seems to be in order, sir. How do you wish the money? Two fives, the rest in one pound notes. Very well. Uh, there you are, sir. It's your account. The customer counts the bills, nods that they come to the proper amount, and walks away out of the bank. A week or so later, in the office of the manager of that bank... Of course, we understand how you feel, Mr. Holt. Mm. The cashier in question will be here in just a moment. One would expect a bank to protect a depositor with more care. Three forged checks, each one successively larger. Apparently, the forger felt himself safer each time. Apparently. If I hadn't requested my statement in the voucher ahead of time this month, this might have gone on almost indefinitely. Mr. Holt drums his fingers angrily on the manager's desk. Both men sit silently, awaiting the arrival of the cashier. You sent for me, sir? Uh, yes, Hollingsworth. Your initials are on these three vouchers. Do you remember the man who cashed these? Yes, sir. Uh, quiet thought. Very dark. Seemed on the tallish side. Nothing at all like the gentleman sitting here. Oh, not at all. Ah, I see. Well, this gentleman is Mr. Hope. <clears throat> but, but I compared the signature, sir. Our usual routine. Is this a case for the police? Sir? It certainly is. And I intend to see to it that the police find the perpetrator of this forgery. Forgery. Apparently quite a clever job of it. After all, the cashier did compare the signatures, and the cashier was honest. No question about that. What then did Scotland Yard have to say about it? May I ask, Mr. Holt, if you've written any letters recently to anyone you don't know? I'm a solicitor, Inspector. I have a great deal of correspondence. Of course. Let me ask you something else. Have you made any debt collections within, say, the past six weeks? Well, now, let me think. Yes, there was that Mr. Arthur. He'd had a bit of a difficulty with Mr. Harris. Asked me to write a letter. Uh, a lawyer's letter, you understand, Inspector? Yes, of course. Go on, sir. I wrote the letter. Mr. Harris paid his debt at once. About 50 pounds it was. I deducted the usual fee and remitted the balance to Mr. Arthur, that's all. But you signed the letter yourself, of course. It's not a new trick, but it's been used quite often lately. I really don't follow you, Inspector. That's how the forger obtained your signature to trace or copy. What? But that's... Quite simple. Yes. And the chances are that neither your Mr. Arthur, whom you saw, nor Mr. Harris, whom you did not see, neither one of them was the forger, as we've come to call it. Then you had similar cases? Many of them. And no trace of the culprit? Never a trace, nor any link. He knows what he's doing, this fellow. Clever, in a diabolical sort of way. Clever, in a diabolical sort of way. Well, you can fight this sort of cleverness with only two weapons. Patience and vigilance. Sergeant Burke here, the yard was both patient and vigilant. Stationed in a bank as one of the searches for the forger. The sergeant heard... Will you cash this, please? The name is Forsyth. Beg pardon? 
Aren't you James Olsey? My name is Forsyth. Sorry, I saw you identified in the Mason case. Your name is Olsey. I'll have to ask you to come with me. I could the enter. sergeant took Mr. Halsey to the yard. There, Inspector Dodson proceeded to the questioning. You used that check as a forgery, didn't you, Halsey? No, sir, I didn't. I see. You were just doing a busy man a favor, running to the bank to catch a check for him. That's it. Exactly right, Inspector. He promised me half a quid. He did for me trouble. I can hardly believe that. You, with your record, trusted like that? Some folks trust me. No doubt. Any questions, sergeant? Yes, sir. Look here, Halsey. Where were you supposed to deliver the money? Carter and Company Limited, Queensbury Building, to Mr. Forsyth. Same name as was on that check. That's all I know. Except I'm out half a quid and in trouble besides. No use, Sergeant. There'll be no precise of Carter and Company. Let this fellow go. He's telling the truth for once. The man we want is the porter. Another blank. No link to the man whose mind was planning all this cleverness. Of course, they did learn one more fact about his operation. <laughs> Before we close the file, I think we might check up and see if we can learn anything from the real Mr. Forsyth. Yes? Oh, uh, I'm a police officer. My credentials, ma'am. Oh, I expect you want to be my husband. Well, if you please, ma'am, we're making a few inquiries. Yes, come in. Thank you. We've had nothing but visits from the police ever since this forgery business. As if it wasn't bad enough already with the burglary last month and all that. What was that? The burglary, did you say? That's right. There's a policeman for you there. Oh, good evening. What can I do to help you? Oh, I think your wife has already supplied the answer to the question I was going to ask you, Mr. Precise. I understand you had a burglary last month. That's right, but there was nothing much stolen, just a few trinkets, nothing valuable. Oh, anything else? Why, yes. Don't remember, dear. They took your textbook. Oh, yes, yes. Rather silly things, you... No, sir. Not so silly as you'd think. Oh, here are the particulars, sir. Thank you. Have you compared them with the information we have already on the forgery case? Yes, sir. The check that Halsey tried to cash came from the stolen book. Who was this forger? This mind which covered all trails to itself. Somewhere... Somehow, the correct thread which would lead to the center of his web must be picked up somewhere. I believe some money has been placed to my credit here from my bank in London. The name is Harrison. Charles Harrison. I'll see Mr. Harrison. Just a moment, please. You know how this is done, of course. You deposit money in one bank in, say, London. Notice the draft is sent at the depositor's request to a branch of the same bank in another city. You arrive in that city, identify yourself, and receive your money. Usually it's a fair amount. Too large to travel with. How much is this draft in your sir? 250 pounds. The amount's correct. It was deposited in our London office by Mr. Harris Thompson. That's right. With instructions to pay to him in person. I'm here. Wish identification, I have it. But you're Mr. Harrison. Charles Harrison, you said so a moment ago. I'm Harris Thompson. I see, perhaps the London branch made a mistake. I'll get in touch with them and come back tomorrow. Sorry to have bothered you. I caught your signal, Barclay. Is something wrong? That fellow there, sir. Just going out the door. Gave me two different names while he was trying to collect on his class. Some kind of swindle? I can't say, sir. The order came down from London in perfectly good order. There are 250 pounds up there. It's, uh, well, it, it's a bit strange. And he behaved oddly. Gave his name and Harrison. It's quite simple. 
Quite simple, really. Money had been deposited in London. The man who was to draw it in Yarmouth would thereby acquire the appearance and reputation of wealth and honesty. When he returned with a new forge draft, it would be honored. A neat scheme. But the fellow mixed up the name. The Yarmouth Bank reported to the yard. Inspector Dodson came calling. We'll get out a pickup order. It might be well worth our while to talk with this Harrison Thompson, whatever his name is. Yes? Does Mr. Harris Thompson live here? What name? Harris Thompson. No, it doesn't live here. Oh, that's a pity. I had something for him. Oh, what was that? Something important. Could you leave it? Well, no. I've got to give it to him in person. Uh, confidential, you see. Oh. Well, wait a minute. Yes? What do you want? Are you Mr. Harris Thompson? Who are you? Never mind who I am, Mr. Harris Thompson. I have a warrant for your arrest. My name isn't Harris Thompson. That's something we know already, Mr. Rafe. All right, Rafe. You tripped yourself. You know that now. My name is Harris Thompson. Stop it, Rafe. Your fingerprints are in file and criminal records. We know your name. My name is Harris Thompson. It'll go a lot easier with you if you admit the truth. My name is Harris Thompson. And that's all you'll say? My name is... All right. We've heard it before. Lock him up, Sergeant. The charge will be attempted fraud and last. Come along, Rafe. With Rafe Harrison Thompson safely away in the Yarmouth jail, Inspector Dodson, in company with several Yarmouth policemen and the manager of the bank, visited the man's lodging. I must say, Inspector, when you search a place, you are quite thorough. Just a routine, sir. Does this make any sense to you? Dear friend, there is no doubt your error at the bank, while understandable, was quite grave. However, I expect to rectify it shortly. The bank has requested that Mr. Thompson come there personally to sign a new bit of paper, giving Mr. Harrison permission to withdraw the money in Yarmouth. I will explain later exactly what I want you to do. In the meanwhile, do not come up to London. Caution has always been, and always will be, my watchword. Trust me, sincerely your J. Why, this fellow is describing our regular procedure, where identification is in doubt. I see. Do you notice the same thing about this letter that I do, sir? Rather a well-formed handwriting. More than that. This letter was written by an educated person. A very well-educated person. But for what a purpose? Yes, the phrasing is simple, but the words he uses, it's a little difficult to understand, isn't it? Why someone with education would involve himself in something like this? Well, when we find Jay, we may have an answer to that. In the meantime, I think we may have our first direct link to the forger. Well, today, as I told you, that self-same letter can be seen in its place in the Black Museum. signed simply J, told nothing new. The manner and style of its writing told many things. This J, possibly the long-sought forger, was a man of education and intelligence. 
A shadow figure using many other men to further his own designs. Seemed a kind of devil. But within a very few days, they learned he was at least a man. So my cousin Rafe is in trouble again. Yes, Mrs. Webster. And we would like to know the occasion of his visiting you. I haven't seen him in ten years. My own aunt's son, and not in ten years. Most of which he spent commuting back and forth in and out of prison. Why do you suppose he turned up now? He wanted something. First, I thought he turned a new leaf, but he wanted something. A convenience. Taken a room in Yarmouth. Would I, he says, receive his mail for him? And you did? Yes, Inspector, I did. May I see whatever you have left of it? I haven't anything. Rafe's friend came and asked for all his mail. His friend? Yes, sir. And how a man like that came to be friends with Rafe, I'll never understand. Well-dressed, nice-looking, and with a real refined manner. Could you describe this man, Mrs. Webster? I had a good look at him. Even talked to him. Fair as she was. Brown hair, nice blue eyes. About, well, my husband's size, and he's five foot eight. Weighs about 170 pounds. A nice mouth. And I'll wager his hand never held a pick or shovel. The second link. A description. Apparently a man of some means. Not particularly individualized, of course, but still, he was someone who could identify this Jay when he'd been found. As for Rafe, his fate was settled quickly. Rafe Martin... You have been convicted of fraud, attempted fraud, and conspiracy to commit fraud. Have you anything to say before sentence is pronounced? What for, Your Lordship? Your mind's made up. Nothing I will say can change it. Very well. As you seem to be the dupe of someone with a great deal more intelligence than yourself, I've been tempted to lighten your punishment. However, your intransigent attitude towards the law enforcement officers in this case, your attitude in court and your past record removed all such temptations. You are about to be committed to prison for the maximum time the law allows. Twenty years hard labor. That is all. An underling, a dupe, went to prison. Shortly after his arrival there at Dartmoor, Rafe had a visitor in his cell. Surprised, Rafe? Only if you were to be my cellmate? Hardly that. But I may have the key which will unlock that door before you expect. I make no deals with coppers. Twenty years is a long time. You'll be an old man when you get out. What of it? In fact, twenty years may be a life sentence for you. Nothing I can do about it, isn't there? I think you know exactly what you can do about it. I don't talk. Your friend Jay didn't help you much in court, did he? Why should he? I don't think you owe him anything. Chances are he had the lion's share of all your little dealings, and now he's free to go right on while you're in here. Think about it, Rafe. If you change your mind, the water... Rafe thought about it. Honor among thieves. Uh, up to a point, perhaps. But the cold, bleak winter at Dartmoor was beyond that point. At least for Rafe. All right, Inspector. But what's in it for me? I think your sentence will be considerably reduced. You were convicted in three counts, Rafe. The time for each might be made to run concurrently instead of consecutively, without too much difficulty. Is it a deal? Well, I can't promise. You know how such things are, Rafe. All right, I'll chance it. <laughs> you never get him otherwise. He's too smart. He's a lawyer. What? That's right. Knows all the ins and outs, he does. Laughs all the time when another fellow's being fooled. 
and laughing at me right now. You've seen him, then? I've seen him. What's his name? Or don't you know? Oh, I know, all right. But he doesn't know I found it out. Followed him home one night. Had his name on his doorbell. I can be bright at times myself. Yes? Mrs. Seaforth? Mrs. Joseph Seaforth? I'm Mrs. Seaforth. Is your husband at home? I'm sorry, no. Would you care to leave your name? We're from Scotland Yard, madam. We have a warrant for your husband's arrest. Arrest? Joe. What can you have done? That's a long story, ma'am. It's taken us quite some time to track him this far. When do you expect him back? That's it, sir. I don't know. He went out of town on business a week ago. I haven't heard from him since. He's never done anything like this before. Never. Gone. Joseph Seaforth, the forger, disappeared. But there are certain rules of thumb the police follow in situations like this. They know what happens when the wanted notices appear in the post offices all over the country. Now, remember, I want every lead that comes in followed through. We're dealing with a very tricky customer, and every piece of information, however small, may be helpful. Yes, I knew him all right. He used to come into the bar for a drink often enough. He was a real gentleman. Distinguished looking. Oh, have you seen him recently? No. Haven't seen him for months. That's his face, all right. Recognize it anywhere. Took a room at our house for a couple of months. Not that we saw much of him. Oh, when did he leave? About six months ago. And you haven't seen him since? No. I know so far, William, I'm confident that somewhere, sometime, somebody who's seen that wanted notice is going to meet up with Seaforth again. Hello there, Mr. Seaforth. But uh, my name's not Seaforth. It's Sander. It's Seaforth, all right. And mine's Alsey. Jack Alsey. One of the fellows you pretty near got into trouble, like you got Rafe Martin into trouble. I'll appreciate it if Don't you... waste your breath. Your picture's up, see? And a right good likeness it is, too. Oh. All right. I am Joseph Seaforth. And now that you know, how do you like to make some money with me? Money? How? Oh, I have a check. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, will you cash it for me? What kind of knock do you think I am? Once burnt, twice shy. That's me every time. We've reason to believe, Halsey, that you've seen Seaforth. What if I have, Inspector? We want to know where. Why should I tell you? I would if I were you. We have enough in you to make you rather uncomfortable for a fair amount of time. All right, I saw him in a pub in Whitechapel. He hangs about down there a lot, I hear. Pass the word, Sergeant. We know Seaforth in Whitechapel somewhere. Circulate his description to all stations. And, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Put the pigeons onto it, Sergeant. They'll know a lot more about him a lot faster than we will. Seaforth seems to frequent two places more than others, Inspector. The Dancing Bear and the Monument. Well, he's getting a trifle careless, isn't he? With all his cleverness, he ought to have known better than that. The search had narrowed now. Two pubs in Whitechapel. The inspector and Sergeant Berkey dropped in at the Dancing Bear for a quiet pint. Do this again, will you, landlord? Very well, sir. We seem to be drawing a blank here, inspector. So far, yes. We'll wait a bit. There you are. Well, there you are. Thank you, sir. By the way, we happen to be waiting for a fellow. Perhaps you know him. Name is Seaforth. Never heard of him. We don't ask names in here. One man's money is as good as another. As long as you don't cause trouble. 
That's the only way to stay in business. The inspector and the sergeant finished their ale. They lingered briefly, then... All right, sergeant. We'll go now. They left. Outside the door, the inspector turned back. Watch the landlord, sergeant, through the window. I see him, sir. He's heading for the back room. Come along, sergeant, before our man gets out on the back door. The door, door, sir. On the right-hand side. Good enough. And uh, thanks. I'll be on my way. How are you, Mr. Seaforth? You're barking up the wrong tree, couple. This man's name is Saunders. Stay out of this, landlord. You want to stay in business? My name is Saunders. And if you are the police, it's hardly necessary for you to molest decent citizens. It's no good, Seaforth. I think you know that. We have a warrant. And your fingerprints from your own apartment. All right, Seaforth. It's finished now. Perhaps one day you'll tell us why you did it. The law can be very dull. When you know it and turn it on itself, there's excitement of a sort. Perhaps one day you'll tell me how you picked up the proper thread. It doesn't matter very much at the moment. And the silent witness to that whole story is today in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. The trial of Joseph Seaforth was swift. One somewhat strange incident did occur, strange in the light of the man's background, previous experience. Throughout the trial, he made no effort to defend himself. He seemed quite ready to accept whatever punishment was determined for him. And then, as the judge was about to pronounce sentence, Seaforth requested the record of his case. He wished, he said, to enter objections to what he felt was inadmissible evidence. The judge denied the request on the grounds that the objection should have been made before the verdict was announced. So Joseph Seaforth went to prison for 20 years. And it was never determined why the lawyer in him awoke only when it was too late. And now until next time, till we meet in the same place and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain as always obediently yours. Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death. <laughs>
The Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear The Black Museum, starring Orson in my house now for almost five years. I can show you letters of reference, but I'd prefer it if you inspected my house first. That way... To May Smith, a routine call, a routine inspection. To John Begley, a matter of some importance, but apparently Mr. Begley was quite satisfied with what he saw. I must say, Miss Smith, you do well by your patients. I'm a nurse, sir, and I've dedicated myself to the proper care of the sick. Well, to be congratulated. May I ask what the charges will be? Your aunt is, I take it, a hopeless invalid. And has been for a good many years. My cousin June has a progressive nervous disorder. Sometimes she's quite completely paralyzed. Then she has remissions. Oh, I see. Would it be multiple sclerosis? I think that's the name of it. In any case, she can care for her own needs to a great extent, except when she has these seizures. Would 15 pounds per week for each of them be within their means? 
With board and so on included. Oh, yes, they have means. You see, my uncle, by marriage, that is, Mr. Dawson, he left them a comfortable income. No problems there. Everything perfectly respectable and not a thought of trouble in the mind of anyone concerned. Martha Dawson and her daughter June came to stay in the care of Miss May Smith. Not a registered nursing home, you understand, but a nice place and a competent nurse in charge of the good doctor on call, all of which was borne out the afternoon some months later when John came to visit his aunt and his cousin. May is sweet. So considerate. Oh, it's May already, is it? Oh, why not, John? She's as good to me as June would be if she were able. I wish I were able, Mother. Mm, but you're not, poor dear. And me is a fine substitute. One of the family, eh? Yes, John. John? Yes, my dear? I'm not getting any younger. Here, yeah, no, none of that kind of talk. I mean it. I'm getting on. Fifty-five is well into middle age. I've been thinking about my will, John. Mm. As your next of kin, I think you ought to discuss it with me. I'm serious, John. Listen to her, John. In all probability, I shall go first. And June will have uh, everything her father left. All right, Aunt Martha. Go ahead, June. Well, I've been watching May, you see. She has practically nothing of her own, except this house and a rather precarious income from her patients. I've... Well, I've been thinking of making her a partial heir. But since you're the main one, John, I thought I'd ask you first. I'm doing all right, dear. No worry on that score. Only take my advice. Be sure before you leap. Money is a strange thing, you know. June listened to her cousin John. But what she thought she was advising, well, that was something else again. May, I'd like to talk with you. Of course, my dear. Go right ahead. I'm... I'm making my will over again. Now, that's fine talk. You and the will, whatever for. To make you my principal heir. June, you mustn't do anything of the kind. I'm sure your nice cousin won't like it a bit. Oh, I've discussed it with him. He doesn't mind in the least. In any case, people with their lives ahead of them mustn't think about dying. Then it's high time I began to think about it. June, dear, let me tell you something. You're going to live so long and pay me 15 pounds a week for so many years that you won't have anything to leave anybody. That's not so. My income will take care of me as long as I live. And John certainly doesn't need the principal. You will. You see, Mary, I know about the real nursing home you've always wanted. And the cottages and house that are the basis of what father left mother and me will be just perfect for you. When the time comes, you stop this kind of talk, June Dawson. That's nurse's orders. I don't want to hear it. I simply refuse to listen to you. A word can be like a stone in a pool of water, the splash, the first ripple. And then wider and wider go the circles. The stone disappears. But it's there, lying at the bottom of the pool. Even when the surface has become still again. This box of candy... Johnny sent his. Uh, will you have some? Thank you, Mother. Now, now, what shall I have? <laughs> Nuka or, or cream? You've had three already. You know sweets aren't really good for you. June is right, Aunt Martha. Now, you let me have that box. 
I'm going to save you from temptation and keep the box in my office. And you may have a piece after dinner and one after luncheon each day. <laughs> the way you boss me. You'd think you were twice my age instead of the other way round. <laughs> You're a good person, May. You really are. Am I? Just because I do my job? Yes, the care was good. And the three women obviously were very fond of each other. But did you notice the phrase, save you from temptation? Would a psychologist call that a Freudian slip of some kind? I wonder now. And who was saving whom? And from what? Certainly Dr. Lewin, the attending physician, thought merely that people were being saved from pain and with conscientious care. I've been in to see Mrs. Dawson, Nuffs. I'm glad. How do you find her, Doctor? She's failing rapidly. Oh, it's too bad. She's a splendid old lady, despite her bad physical condition. Does June... Uh, does Miss Dawson realize her mother's condition? Uh, I'm sure she does. Uh, she's a brave woman. And a self-sacrificing daughter, if ever I saw one. No question about that. Well, it must come to all of us one day. Death, I mean. Now then, have you the final report on the terminal care for Mrs. Wrightson? Yes, sir. Right here in the files. And for Miss, Mrs. Richter. Uh, thank you, nurse. You know, you really ought to qualify as a proper nursing home. You know your business, Miss Smith. Thank you, Doctor. Well, regulations are strict and expensive to fulfill. Now, on these two cases, Doctor, you prescribe morphia towards the end, you remember? And you let me have a supply. I uh, keep the dangerous drugs in here. And I have some of the tablets left. I'd like to return them, if I may. Very well. Dangerous drug, morphia. Just as well not to have it around, even under lock and key. A dangerous drug. Tempting. But there's another drug, or so it may be called at times, a temptation, certainly. Seems to have the power to dull the perceptions and the consciences of people, much as morphia does at a time. This drug is money. There it is. My will. Remade. Johnson... Will you sign here, please? Uh, yes, ma'am. The papers were signed, put away. A will, an inheritance, a gesture from a grateful woman to a friend in need. That was all. An incident over, closed, with a period put to it as the pen stopped its scratching, as in a few weeks, a heart stopped beating. At least she died without pain. In her sleep, Doctor. Around midnight. How is Miss Dawson taking it? Quite well. Would you like to see her? Perhaps I'd better. A sedative may be indicated. She's in her room. This way. Can I expect any reaction in June's own trouble? A disease of the nervous system like hers? Mm, there may be some trouble now, even when she's taking this blow so well. I know. Here we are, sir. Miss Dawson, may I express my sympathy? Thank you, Doctor. Mother suffered enough in this world. I pray she has peace in the next. I trust she will. Miss Smith is worried about you now. I... I do feel a bit upset. I, 
I hope I'm not going to have any after effects. Have you noticed any signs? My legs feel so heavy. That's usually a sign. Uh-huh. And my fingertips on my right hand, they seem to have lost the sense of touch. Well, you just let me prescribe a sedative, my dear. With some sleep, you'll be fine. Uh, even when we expect something like this, it's still a shock. There we are, nurse. Thank you, doctor. Now, you lie down, June. As doctor says, even when you expect something, it's still a shock. Yes, a shock indeed. Perhaps not unconnected with a piece of paper, a prescription, which can be seen today in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with the Black Museum, starring Orson Continue with the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. The words they use are polite, terminal care. They carry many connotations, an end to pain, an easing off from weary illness, a quiet kind of death. However, they do not mean a helping hand to death. Doctor, poor Miss Dawson doesn't seem to be getting much relief from the sedative you gave her. I'm afraid the funeral and all the details have been too much for her. I've been expecting that. She's worse, then. Yes. Her right side is paralyzed. Doctor, June's become more than a patient. I I don't want to lose her, too. I understand, Miss Smith. Now, don't worry about that. Chances are Miss Dawson will live for quite a few years yet. Now, in the meantime... Ah, here you are, nurse. I've used a different compound this time. Number 1778 in place of 2032. Is this one stronger than what she's been getting? Yes, there's a bit more of the morphia in this prescription. Yes, let us ease the pain and relieve the suffering. This is a great career to comfort and aid the sick. One does many things to help a sufferer. 
Dr. Lewin, Miss Dawson has asked a peculiar question. I don't like it. What is it? She wants to know how one can be cremated. Oh, she's thinking about that, is she? Well, she... Well, she hates her body. I think she wants to feel it will be completely destroyed as soon as she is gone. Now, can't you get her mind off this? Well, I try. I've been spending as much time as I can with her. But she keeps coming back to that same question. I'll have to satisfy her, I'm afraid. Well, you tell her she can put the direction in her will if she has one. Or she can leave a letter properly witnessed ordering disposal by cremation. Then, when she dies... Whoever is left behind applies to the Registrar of Deaths for permission. The rest will be taken care of by a licensed mortician. Ugh. What thoughts on such a pleasant day? She seems so terribly depressed. What can I do, Doctor? Now just do your best to keep her mind. June Dawson, depressed, half-paralyzed, and facing several years of a kind of half-life. Not pleasant. No, definitely Cousin John Begley was very upset about it. I don't like it, Miss Smith. June shows no improvement at all. I'm upset by it as much as anyone. Yes, I suppose you are. What do you mean by that, Mr. Begley, if I may ask? If she dies, no more 15 pounds per week for you. I resent that, Mr. Begley. Yes, I suppose you should. Particularly since my cousin made that new will. Uh, do you know its contents? She hasn't disclosed them to me, but I can guess. Do you know them? I can't say I do. Hmm. Wise of my cousin to keep her will a secret, particularly since her estate will be worth at least 4,000 pounds, if not more. A large amount of money and a small lie. Interesting combination. Of course, one can hardly blame this. It's not Cousin John's business, what's in that will, if June doesn't care to tell him. In any case... Other events impend which will have a bearing on the matter. <laughs> quickly. Almost as if she'd wished herself to death. Why didn't you call me? And it was one in the morning. She seemed to be sleeping, except her breathing was peculiar. I tried to rouse her and she asked me. I left her. 215 Johnson, who was on the night desk this week, called me. She'd run for help, and I rushed in. She still had the cord in her hand, and she was dead. Well, it happens that way. Something gives up. This was a cerebral hemorrhage, as far as I can judge, without an autopsy. I'll state so on the desk. Very well, Doctor. Oh, I, I feel so ineffectual at the moment. You see, she was more than a patient. She was my friend. I understand. Now, you'll be all right in a day or so after the internment. Oh. Oh, Doctor. She she wrote a letter, insisted on it, after I told her what you said. What I said? About the cremation. Oh, that. Oh, yes, I remember. Yes, very well. You'll need the form request to fill out. I'll send one over. Now, you can make it out, attach the letter, and take it to the registrar. He happens to be the health officer in Nottingham as well. Oh, thank you. Now then, I'll make out the certificate. No problems. Just the grief over a lost friend. Make out the papers. Call in Johnson, the faithful servant. Johnson? Yes, miss? I have an errand for you. Dr. Lewin sent this form over. It's all filled out. Now, I want you to take it to the health officer. You know where, don't you? Yes, of course, miss. 
And be sure you file this letter with it. Now, you remember witnessing Miss Dawson's signature on this letter, don't you? Oh, yes, of course I do. Johnson did as he was told. It was his job, no questions asked. However, the registrar at the health office did have a question or two. You work at this place for this Smith woman, do you? Yes, sir, I do. Uh, the form here says nursing home. Is that what it is? Oh, I suppose so, sir. Well, don't you know? Well, there's only a few patients, and it's Smith's own house. Oh, one of those, I see. I thought there was no registered nursing home at that address. I happen to be in charge of those records myself. She never called it a nursing home before, sir. She, well, she always wants one, of course. Talks about it a lot. Says it costs a lot of money. Yes, it does. Uh, will it be all right for me to tell her to go ahead with things now, sir? No, 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 not just yet. I'll want to get confirmation of this commission request from a relative, too, if possible. I imagine the family will claim the body. We'll tell your employer we'll be in touch with her. Strange, isn't it? An ambition, a desire so near fulfillment. And Nurse Smith fills out an official form as if the ambition had already been fulfilled. Two words. And wheels begin to turn. Nurse Smith has an unexpected caller. You wanted to see me, sir? Uh, yes. My name is Liggett, Inspector Liggett, Scotland Yard. Uh, sit down, please, Inspector. Thank you. What can I do for you, Inspector? Did you know there's been an, a post-mortem on Miss June Dawson? Uh, no, I didn't. Who gave permission? Uh, next of kin, uh, John Begley. Oh. You know him? He's been a visitor here. I see. The death certificate said cerebral hemorrhage. Dr. Lewin told me. Would you tell me the type of medication you gave the patient? I have the record book right here. Yes, here it is. Patient in pain in afternoon. Gave two tablets as prescribed by Dr. Lewin at 4 p.m. And uh, here's the 8 p.m. entry. Usual dosage of sedative. What was in those tablets? Morphia. Dr. Lewin left them with me. Two on September the 5th, four more on September the 12th. You'll find the entries in my drug book. And in the sedative? There was morphia in that, too. Dr. Lewin had prescribed an additional dose. He'd increased the compound. You seem to have all the facts. I keep careful records. But nevertheless, Miss Dawson died quite unexpectedly of a stroke. So the doctor certified. That is not in my province. No. And the doctor made out the certificate without an autopsy. He's quite a competent physician. No doubt. But the fact remains that Miss Dawson did not die of a stroke, Miss Smith. No? Uh, may I ask? She died of an overdose of morphia. Quite a large overdose. That's why I'm afraid we shall have to take you in charge until further investigations have either cleared you or brought you to trial either for manslaughter or homicide. <laughs> Death masquerades as mercy when murder hides behind friendship. There's little sympathy for the accused. In this case, where one required to heal stood accused of killing, there was only anger. Nonetheless, justice was well ordered and the evidence was made quite clear. First, the motive. Mr. Bigley, what do you know of the occasion of your cousin's drawing up a new will in favor of the prisoner? My cousin discussed it with me. What did she tell you? that she felt so grateful to Miss Smith that she wanted to leave her entire estate to this woman. What is the amount of the estate? <laughs> to the best of your knowledge, did the prisoner know the size of the bequest? I told her myself. On what occasion? When I asked if she knew the contents of my cousin's will. And what did she say to that? 
that she did not know. At a subsequent visit with my cousin, I learned that she did know. In fact, her own assistant or helper witnessed the document. Thank you very much, sir. And finally, opportunity and access to the drug. Dr. Lewin, a tragic though innocent figure in the case, was the witness. Doctor, it has been alleged that you gave the prisoner two tablets of morphine for the deceased on the 5th of September and four more on the 12th. Is this true? It is not. I never prescribed morphine in that form for this patient. Did you prescribe it in any other form? In a sedative, yes. I must confess a slight error, however. The patient had been receiving compound 1778. I later prescribed compound 2032, thinking at the moment that it contained more of the drug than 1778. Later, I discovered it contained less. However, as it seemed to be equally easing to the patient, I did not correct the situation. Were you urged to add the morphia? I was, by Miss Smith. Have you any idea where the prisoner may have acquired the drug which was used? During the past year, I have given her small quantities of the drug for use at her discretion, but never more than eight tablets at a time. She has returned a few from time to time. On checking my records, I find I have given her almost a hundred tablets. Is this normal? In the situation where terminal care is the norm, yes. However, it is perfectly possible that some of the unused tablets were not returned to me. Now, returning to your prescription, Doctor, do you remember the occasion of your writing it, and why? I do. It was just after the patient's mother died while under Miss Smith's care. Miss Smith was most anxious for a stronger sedative for the patient, and inquired specifically concerning its comparative strength after I wrote the prescription. She also inquired of me concerning cremation. The Crown rested its case. The sentence was... Death by hanging. Well, today that same piece of paper, that prescription, is in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. And now, until next time, till we meet again in the same place, and I tell you another story of the Black Museum. I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. Museum. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a light bulb, a broken mirror, a stained blotting pad, all are touched by murder. Here's an auto service card, issued by a garage to show that a certain motor car was oiled and greased. And the speedometer reading was 15,001. According to the card, his car had done 5,001 miles in the first. By the following day, he'd added another 160 miles to the speedometer reading. And he told you, Inspector, he hadn't been on any long journeys. 
He'd forgotten the speedometer reading on the service card. They all overlooked something. And the harmless-looking service card which George Dalton overlooked was instrumental in convicting him of the brutal murder of his own mother and father. That's why it's earned its place here in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. As beyond these stone walls, the life of London flows as ceaselessly as the muddy waters of Thames. Here, it's silent. Let us walk under the frieze of death masks, the masks of criminals of bygone days, suspended grimly under the ceiling. That glass funnel means nothing until we stop and read the card beside it. Once this funnel was used to pour acid over the body of a woman. Insignificant in itself, easily broken, but was strong enough to hang a murderer. Now here's a pair of spectacles. Over there's a powder puff. And here's, here's what we're after, the buff-colored service card. As I open the showcase and take it between my fingers, I ask you to come with me back to 1947... We're calling at the quiet suburban house of Mr. and Mrs. Dalton, live in South London. It's a respectable district populated by respectable middle-class people, but the Daltons are in trouble. The cause is their only son, George Frederick. They are discovering that George is not as other young men of his age. To his parents, he is, at the age of 23, a problem child. He's not a bad boy, Fred, you know that. But he just doesn't seem to settle down. Uh, I know his trouble. Oh, don't be too harsh on him. He won't work. That's what's wrong with the young devil. Oh, Fred. Well, how many jobs has he had since he came out of the army? I don't know. So many, you lose count. And even the army couldn't do anything with him. Absent without leave half a dozen times. He spent more time in detention than he did on the drill square. Shh. Here he is. Oh, dear, he's upset again. Uh, now, I expect you'll turn the radio on. Oh, George, for heaven's sake, don't turn that radio on. I've got a headache. Oh, go to hell. What did you say to me? I told you to... Here, you get away from that set. George! Joe, you put your hands on me. Go to your room. But I'm Please sure... Protect he... me. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sure he didn't Go to your it. room. I didn't mean it, Dad. I'll sweep up this mess and we'll have some tea, shall we? All right, young man. For your mother's sake, I'll forget it. But I'm getting straight on the telephone to my old friend Jim Spencer. He's got a jeweler shop in Clapham, and he meets a lot of people. Maybe he can advise me about fixing you up with a job. Jim Spencer, the jeweler, was white-haired in his 60s. He lived over his shop, which was quietly prosperous, and he had just lost a young assistant who, having learned something of the trade, had transferred to a larger firm. So, 
George Dalton was taken on in his place, and for the first time, George seemed to be interested in his work. But perhaps that was not altogether surprising. Pass me my eyeglass, will you, my boy? Here are. Thank you. That's a very nice pendant you're working on, Mr. Spencer. Yes, it is, isn't it? Uh, how much is it worth? Mm, I'd give a hundred guineas for it and sell it at a hundred and twenty. Would the owner sell? Not this one. But I always keep a few hundred pounds in the safe there, just in case I get a chance to buy something like this. Mm, now, where did I put those tweezers? To Mrs. Dalton's delight, her son was still working in the shop at the end of six months. But young George was rather less interested in the work than in the end product. And above all, he was interested in that safe. He even had a duplicate of the key made. He had a duplicate of the door key, too. Perhaps he didn't quite know what he was going to do with his keys, but in a steamy cafe behind the bright lights of Piccadilly, he found a friend who had ideas. If you ask me, chum, I'd say you were sitting on a blinking gold mine. Hey, what do you mean? Yeah, come off it, George. We did 90 days' detention together in the army, didn't we? Yeah? I know you're not quite daft. I mean, all you got to do is to get the key of the door, the key of the safe, and... Well, I've got that. Well, we... You have. There they are. Well, for crying out loud, what are you stalling about? Well, I've never pulled off a real job, Charlie. It's, uh, it's a bit of a step to take, isn't it? It's up to you, cook. I know what I'd do. I'd slip in about two o'clock in the morning. Here, here, Charlie. Would you come with me? All right. Do you want to make it a business proposition? I, uh... Yes, I do. Look, if we broke into... Shh, just quiet. Pay the bill. Let's get out of here. Okay, okay. Here, where are we going? I'm taking her down to the Elephant and Castle. Meet Slash. We work as a team. He's the boss. It's the only safe way. Slash has got brains. He'll put you right. Come on, I'll introduce you. So, George Dalton started his professional career. Yeah, you know this got well to you, Charlie? <laughs> I'll say. We did 90 days together, didn't we, George? <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay. And you want to join us, do you, George? I want uh, Charlie to come in on this job with me. Uh, that's the idea. Yeah, the idea's okay. And we need a jewellery expert in the gang. Forget this, pal. I'm the boss. And what I say goes. Do this job, you and Charlie, and take 50% of the profits. The rest goes into the organisation. Understand? Do you agree to the terms? Uh, yes. Yes, I agree. Ah, then that's fixed. Shake on it. This clinches it. And remember... There's no funny business in this outfit. I suppose you know why the boys call me Slash. I think so. I carry a razor. Remember that, George. Not that I'd use it on you, but I thought I'd mention it in passing. <laughs> George is okay, I've told you. Of course he's okay, and I'll fix up a car for you tomorrow night. A car? Yes, it's all part of the service. You're busting into the Spencer shop tomorrow night. <laughs> so you've got all day tomorrow to fix the burglar alarms. And those burglar <laughs> alarms took quite a bit of fixing. But by closing time, George Dalton had traced and snipped the wires. Putting on his coat, he wished his employer a dutiful good night. And at 11 o'clock, Mr. Spencer turned out his light in the bedroom upstairs and climbed into bed. Three hours later, a stolen car turned quietly into the deserted street and stopped. Coast clear, George. You got the keys? You bet. Okay, then in we go. Right. Where's the safe? Over here. Oh, okay, get to work. 
The old man's upstairs, isn't he? Yes. It can help the old fool if he wakes up and comes down. You got that safe open yet? No, no, the lock's a bit stiff. Here, Charles. Yeah? Shine the torch this way. Go on, what's it? Jumping, Jakes. What the place is he doing? Oh, sorry, I knocked a tray over. The clock made me jump. Here, let's get out, quick. Open that safe, you stupid swab. It's jammed, Charlie. Yeah, come on, let me have a go. You sure this is the right key? Of course I'm sure. Here, look, Spencer will be awake now. We must get out. You idiotic clock, this isn't the right key. Yes, it is. And uh, the lock's open. Pull the door. Look out, look out. The old man's coming. Here he is. Who's there? Get him. Jeez! Get back! Grab what you can and run for it. Okay. I've got two trays of rings and some notes. Come on, let's get out. The jeweller was found lying in a pool of blood ten minutes later. The neighbor who found him called the police immediately, but needless to say, there were no signs of the thieves and they had left no clues. And Mrs. Dalton stated that her son had been at home in bed on the night of the robbery. To the best of her knowledge, she was telling the truth. But two days later, her son visited his unfortunate employer and handed in his notice. I just couldn't go on drawing me wages while the shop's closed and you're here in hospital. You're a good boy, George. I only wish you knew enough about the business to carry it on for me. But I thought it wiser to put the stock away in the bank in case those rascals came back. I only wish I could get my hands on them, that dirty swine. Well, luckily they didn't get away with anything worthwhile. But what do you mean? I, I thought, did you? Uh, what did you think, George? I thought they cleaned you out. <laughs> no, I'm too old a bird to leave valuables in the shop safe at night. I take them all upstairs to a real safe. I only leave the paste stuff down below. Didn't I ever tell you? No, you you never told me. How much the old gentleman suspected, we don't know. If he did have any suspicions, he never had them. But Slasher was not so easy. George Dalton, the expert in jewellery. Come here, George, I want to speak to you. Uh, what's the trouble, Slash? I'll tell you what's the trouble, you, you dirty double-crossing pedisher. Think you can unload junk on me, do you? You knew these rings were duff. I didn't know. After working in the shop for six months, you didn't know where the real stuff was? Don't give me that. Two trays of duff and a fiver in notes. You can't get away with it. Where's the rest? There isn't any more. Okay. I warned you. Here it comes. Put the razor! The slash of the razor across Dalton's left cheek unlocked the gates of an unquenchable hatred. With the flash of six inches of sharp steel, he became a killer, and he knew that the slasher must die. He would evolve the perfect murder. With no clues, such as the service card, which can be seen today among the exhibits in the Black Museum. We return to Dalton, the killer. With blood still streaming from his cheek, he smiles at the slasher. And for the first time in his life, that individual is surprised, taken off his guard. I 
I suppose I asked for that. Get out of here. You're not pretty. I've got your brand on me now. I've got to be one of you. What do you mean? You're a man of action. I like that, even if it hurts. Give me another chance. I'll do better next time. I never knew they made them so yellow. Get out. You stink. I've got a date here with a smasher and you might scare her away. Now, scram. Ah. Here she comes. Henry, is that you? Right here, Toots. I never knew your name was Henry. Yet. Oh. oh, hello, what's happened? Oh, he's had an accident. <laughs> Just going. Hello there. Are you hurt bad? No, it's just nothing much. He's no friend of mine, Brenda. Come on, let's go. Oh, okay. Good night, Henry. Good night, Brenda. I'm going to say some more of you. That's right, Dalton. You've made your choice. You're going to start with a girl. That will hurt him. Follow them. They go into a cafe. Have a meal. You wait in the shadows. They're coming out at last. Follow them again. Into a mean little street. Oh, yes, this must be where she lives. You're going to let me in, aren't you, Toots? No, I'm tight. What's the matter with you tonight? I don't know what you did to that fellow. Oh, for Pete's sake, you're not still beefing about him. I know what you did, and I'm no prude, but I don't like razors, and you know it. Good night. No, now, look here, wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> if that's the way you want it, see you tomorrow. He's gone. Suppose we knock on her door. Yes, knock on her door. See what happens. Cheeks still bleeding. Look, I told you to... <gasps> it's me. What? What do you want? Have you got something I can put on this cut? You followed us? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I I need help. Oh, if he comes back, he'll kill you. Here, come in quick. I don't know why I'm doing this. I must be crazy. Here, come into the kitchen. I'll, I'll bathe that cut. Well, uh, I, I'd, I'd better go. I'm, I'm a nuisance. Oh, you can't go now. Come over to the sink. Well, if the cops saw you in this mess, they'd take you for questioning. Here, hold your face over the water. Righto. What's your name? George. George Dalton. Henry says you double-crossed him. I didn't. It would be so easy to squeeze that pretty throat of yours, Brenda. But you're too lovely. Much you there. too lovely. Now, now, keep still while I put some plaster on. It's lucky the cut isn't deep. Huh? How'd you feel? Oh, 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 fine, thanks. Oh. I, uh, I suppose I'd better go now. I don't understand you, George. You know, you're different from the others. What others? I suppose you know what sort of girl I am. I don't care what sort of girl you are, but... I... I, I sure like you. Well, you're... You're decent. Perhaps you should go. I'll do... Just whatever you say. Oh, your shirt and coat are all covered in blood. I can't turn you out like that. Oh, you better spend the night now. I'll get you some clean clothes in the morning. Brenda, I never felt like this about... about anyone before. I... I don't know what to say. Funny. I don't either. Well, I'll put the kettle on and 
We'll have a nice cup of tea. Tea. As much a part of London's life as Buckingham Palace and the Houses of Parliament, Brenda made tea. The next morning she went out and bought a new lover the clothes he needed. He put on the clothes she bought him and went home. He knew quite well what he was going to do, and that night he borrowed his father's car, and at nine o'clock he drove to the bomb site, where he knew the slasher would be waiting for Brenda. And in his pocket he had a short length of lead piping. As he approached his objective, he saw a movement in the shadows. It was the slasher. Well, if it isn't the jewel expert. Yeah, you come at the money? Hello, Slash. How you doing? Well, what's your idea? Not looking for trouble, are you? What do you think? Get back, you don't! Ah. Now, that squares out of count. Now, I'll put you under the rug in the back of the car and I'll take you for a little ride. to a deserted bridge over a railway. Dalton lifted his victim onto the parapet. Then he paused. Uh, just before you go, I... I wonder how much you've got in your pocket. Anybody coming? Ah, uh, uh, good. Ah. Uh, oh, yes. Quite a few notes here. Thank you, Slash. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Quite gently, Dalton eased the unconscious man over the edge. After that, it was easy. Brenda, like the old jeweler, may have had her suspicions, but she kept them to herself. Dalton had money, taken nearly a hundred pounds from the slasher's pocket before pushing him into the path of the oncoming train. That hundred pounds lasted just two weeks. Two glorious weeks. The happy couple celebrated those weeks in the famous seaside resort of Brighton. Then, on the morning of January the 1st, 1948, with funds running low, George Dalton took his father's car into the car duct service station to be oiled and greased. Now, why did he do that? Superintendent Brandruth of Scotland Yard has the answer. There is no doubt that Dalton had already decided to drive to his parents' home and ask for money. He had insufficient funds with which to pay his hotel bill, and it was essential for him to receive help from his father. His father was always particular about the regular servicing of his car, and the son doubtless had this carried out in order to produce it as a sop for his father's wrath. And the speedometer reading was 15,001, duly recorded on the service card. So George Dalton drove the 50-odd miles to his home on what was to be his fatal journey. He was hampered by fog on the way, and when he eventually turned into his own street, the fog was very thick. Stopped the car outside his parents' house, went inside, and got down to business. I'm sorry, Father, but I've got to have the money quick. Well, who the blazes do you think you're talking to? You take my car for a weekend, you keep it for a fortnight... Well, I've had it, sir. I it's... don't care if you've had it rebuilt. You'll never drive it again. Billy nearly got onto the police and reported it stolen by you. And now you have the infernal impudence to demand 50 pounds, just like that. If I don't have it, I'll go to prison. The hotel won't Then you'll wait. have to go to prison. You'd have gone there a long time ago. It might have brought you to your senses. 
You're my own son, but I'm disgusted with you. Go on, get out. You can't send me away, can't I? There's the door now. Now, go on, get out. Oh, no, you don't. Take your hands off me, you young rascal. Your mother, mother. Give me that money, will you? You're mad. You're you're choking me. (laughs) George, what have you done? He's dead. Dalton, apparently unimpressed by the enormity of his crime, left the murdered couple lying where they had fallen while he searched the house for money. He found just over 30 pounds of his parents' savings. He drove the car into the garage, put his victims in the back and covered them once again with a traveling rug. Then, as he cleaned the house and locked up after himself, his darkness fell. He drove to the nearest bridge over a railway. the same method as before. And when it was over, the murderer drove back to his lover in Brighton. But when he arrived, she had grim news for him. George, tell me you didn't do it. What? What, what? what are you talking about? Your mum and dad. Ah, you're mad. You don't know what you're saying. Come into the other room, quickly. Brenda. What do you know about my mother and father? Now, tell me. So you did do it? No. I know you did it. Why? How could you? Brenda. Don't touch me. Mr. Dalton, is it? Yeah? What do you want? I'm sorry to have to tell you that your mother and father were found dead an hour ago. I didn't do it. What exactly do you mean by that? How how dreadful. I, I don't believe it. You know how they died? Of course I don't. How could I? Well, that's what I was wondering. Could you give me an account of your movements today? Uh, yeah. I spent the day here with, with my fiance. You haven't used the car outside. Oh, we drove to New Haven. That's eight and three quarter miles. Seventeen and a half there and back. You haven't been anywhere else? No. The car's been here all the time? Yes. According to the garage people, you had the car serviced this morning. Yeah. The speedometer reading then, according to the service card, was 15,001. You've put on over a hundred miles since then. I've just checked the clock on my way in. The girl knows I've been with her all day. Oh, George, what's the good of you lying? The speedometer's in order. That can't lie. I'm afraid that in the circumstances, it's my duty to charge you with the murder of... Stop it! Let me go! So George Dalton was arrested and charged with the murder of his parents within an hour of their bodies being discovered on a railway line 50 miles away. In due course, he was convicted. And at 8 o'clock on a cold, misty morning, he mounted the steps of the scaffold. And he told you, Inspector, he hadn't been on a long journey. He'd forgotten the speedometer reading on the service card. They all overlooked something. And that is why the service card has earned its place here in the Black Museum. You may be wondering how George Dalton was traced so quickly. When his parents' bodies were discovered, the police immediately went to the Dalton residence, expecting to find the son. Both the son and the car were, of course, missing. 
It was the work of a few minutes to trace the make and number of the vehicle, and a general alert was put out all over the country. Police officers visited garages, and the telltale service card localized the search to the Brighton area where Dalton's name was recognized in the hotel. The girlfriend was questioned while George Dalton was already being tailed by a police car into the hotel forecourt. At this stage, of course, there was no evidence against him, but the police allowed him to get into the hotel before questioning him. So they proved the theory that by giving a criminal just enough rope, he'll surely hang himself, which is what Dalton did with the aid of the buff-colored service card, which has earned its honored place here in the Black Museum. Now, until we meet next time in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain as always obediently yours. <laughs>